stories are a really important part of our existence. In a lot of ways, the stories that we tell and share are the thread that tie the different sections of our lives together. They bring the serious, the funny, the unforgettable, the strange, all into relationship with one another. And in many ways, it is through story that we communicate who we are. I don't know what happened when you were born. I mean, I can guess at some of the details. I don't remember my own birth. Um, A lot of people do remember my birth, though. Uh, Not because I'm special, but because there were three of us. Uh, We were in the newspaper and all this different kind of weird stuff. But I do remember uh, when my children were born. Yes, I am that good of a father that I remember when my children were born. Um, And and Zeke was born uh, kind of in the middle of the afternoon to uh, Nisha had, the experience was just very calm and, well, it was calm for me. Nisha, was it calm for you? She she had her epidural, everything went just fine. Um, Jed was almost born in the garage and then almost born in the car and then almost born in the elevator then almost born in the lobby, and finally was actually born in a hospital room. But there still were no angels singing. There were no wise men or women that came to greet my children as they came into the world. That's not a knock on anyone who did come to visit us. But still, those those moments when my children came into this world, when they took their first breaths, when they cried for the first time, are moments that I will never forget. Because it's the beginning of, it was the beginning of their lives. This fragile little person that was handed over to Nisha and I that we weren't really sure what to do with. Hardly any story is more important or formative than the one that was just read for us this morning by Wayne and Nisha. And it's a story that, in a lot of ways, is difficult to believe due to its astounding premise. That God so loved this world, and that when he looked down on this world, he saw a people that were drowning under the weight of their own failure and decided that he could not allow this to continue. So he sent his son Jesus to this world and he did this because he loved the world and all that he created. He did this because he wanted to redeem the world. And in the verses that were read this morning, there is a note and it's almost like a side note in that first passage, but it says what this child that is sent by God is to be called. He is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This story is so formative because it tells of the night when a baby took his first breath and with that first breath, as he drew in the air of the world he had created, he exhaled the promise that creation most needed. That we are not alone in this place. That God is with us. And that he is not with us from afar in some indescribable unspoken place but that he is here in this world with us. That he will walk with us. 
that he will heal the things that hurt us, that he will forgive the sin that entangles us. And so as we read this story, these stories that we have heard so often through the years, that we maybe have even forgotten how spectacular they are. That, as we are about to sing in a moment, it was a glorious night. When the heavens opened and sang of the coming of the Lord, when the Savior Jesus took his first breath and God came to be with us. So we have been uh, celebrating Advent together here uh, as a church. And uh, as Randy has pointed out this morning, Advent is a time uh, where we celebrate uh, the coming of Jesus and we look forward to his return when he will come back to take us home. Uh, And we've talked about how uh, we need to begin to live our lives for the future with the future in mind. And not being caught up in the things of this world, but letting our, our hearts, our minds being, be pulled toward uh, what God has for us. And so we've, we've covered it in three uh, different ways, and I don't know that I'll get them in the right order either, Debbie. Um, uh, we've talked about uh, hope, and we've talked about joy, and we've talked about peace. And, and we've talked about how we have all of those things uh, with God. And, you know, it's, it's funny as, as many of you know, just with some of the stuff that's been going on uh, in my life with my mom and my mom's health and trying to figure all that out, it's kind of like uh, trying to preach a sermon about hope and peace and joy while you're in the middle of all of this chaos is, is kind of hard to do. Uh, so this week should be the softball, right? This, this week, I mean, love is like, the easiest thing for us to talk about, isn't it? Like, lo- love is, is what God is, is all about. And so we lit the candle uh, this morning. It is the candle of love, in case any of you are, are curious. Um, and so here we go. Like, love is a defining characteristic of God. And yet, as I was thinking about God's love this week, it occurred to me that maybe talking about God's love is a little bit more complicated than I was giving any credit for when I thought this week would be the softball. Um, Let me ask you a question, and it's not a trick question, okay? Do you think that you understand the love of God? Do you think you understand the love of God? Now, this feels like a trick question. It does. Yeah, Cheryl will be judging all of your answers. Um, so if you, if, if you want to know why you are right, you, need, you can submit something in, you know, written form. Uh, so do we really understand what the love of God is? I want you to, th- I want you to just sort of sit with that question for a second. Uh, because the love of God shouldn't be confusing But in some ways it is, and if you don't think it's confusing, just let me make it confusing for you. That's part of what I do, is I take things that are simple and I make them overly complicated. Um, So let's let's back up for a second. Have you ever been in a situation that you completely misread? Yeah, 
Well, I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, all of you know how socially adept I am. So, uh, you know, the, the likelihood that I am going to find myself in some sort of misreading some sort of situation is, is, is high. And, and sometimes, you know, the misreading of, of a situation can be kind of funny. Uh, or embarrassing, and, and, and you know, a really lighthearted sort of way, like, you know, someone's waving to someone behind you, and you wave, you know, um, those kinds of things, you know, it's, it's not such a big deal, um, and then that stuff is fairly easy to get over, uh, but then at other times, misreading a situation can really have kind of some dire consequences. Uh, I've had people come up to me, and, and I think it happens a lot in our communication with one another where we misread something. Uh, for example, have you ever gotten an email from someone, and you read the email, and you think that they are angry with you? And so you start to, like, worry, like, what did I do? Why are they so angry? And, and you're, like, trying to word your response so as to counteract whatever's going on in their heart that you don't understand, you go out and, you know, buy a gift. <laughs> Maybe if I give them something, they won't be so angry. And then the next, but the next time you see them, they act like everything is completely normal. And then you're angry. Because you've been worrying about this all week, and they haven't been angry at all. And what's happened? You took this email, which they wrote in their informative style. I'm telling you this because this is how I write emails. Uh, <laughs> in their informative style, and you read it, and because it wasn't, necessarily worded how you would have worded it or whatever was going on, you read it and you thought, oh no, they're angry with me, when really, they don't have any idea what's going on. Any of you ever had this happen to you? Or am I like the only one? Yeah? I've had people approach me after sermons and thank me for saying something I know I didn't say. <laughs> like, I know I didn't say. Thank you so much, Bryce, for saying blah, 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 blah. Thank you so much, Bryce, for saying I don't have to love my neighbors and Jesus is just okay. Like, I'm pretty sure I didn't say those things, you know? I, 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 didn't, I didn't go that route. Um, but there are times where our misreading of a situation can really hurt us because we enter into all kinds of situations with a set of expectations. Uh, whether it's uh, that you're going to a restaurant to order food, or whether it's you're going to visit friends or family, I mean, if you don't think that the holidays are a season of expectation, then you haven't spent much time with your family recently. Uh, we all enter into a thousand different things every day with a sense of expectation. We expect to be treated a certain way. We expect to be spoken to a certain way. We expect uh, people to do certain things for us. And when it comes to relationships in our lives, we have all kinds of different sets of expectations. For example, if you've had a friend for 20 years, your expectation of that friend are probably different than expectations you have of someone you just met. True? Uh, the expectation that you have for your spouse is very different than the expectation you have of a friend. So within these different relationships in our life, we have these sort of, let's say, graduating expectations, things that we want or expect from other people, and the closer relationship that we have, the higher our expectations are. Now, here's the funny thing about expectations. Some of our expectations of other people are realistic, and some of them are not. 
And here's the other thing. Sometimes we expect other people to know what our expectations are and meet them without ever having told them what they are. And then when they don't meet them, we are disappointed. And if they come to us and they say, well, I didn't know that you expected that of me, what do we say? Well, I guess you just don't know me that well then. (laughs) Right? We turn it back on them. Because it wasn't us who failed to communicate. It was them that failed to pick up whatever we were laying down. And when our expectations are not met, it can be very difficult to make things right again. Have any of you ever had a friendship or a relationship where you made a mistake, you disappointed them in some way, you did something wrong, and they never forgot it? You know? Any of you ever had that experience? I, I, I know that I have to where it's like, and I could come before someone and say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And they would just hold on to whatever this was for as long as they could. So let's get back to the previous question. Do we understand the love that God has for us? It's not a trick question. And I would say immediately that the answer is probably yes and no. We do understand the love that God has for us in some ways, and yet, let's just be, lay it out there that the love of God is something that we also have a hard time wrapping our minds around. And let me give you just a couple of reasons why we have difficulty wrapping our minds what the love of God is. We have expectations of God. And we have laid these expectations out in front of him. And sometimes God meets those expectations that we have for him. And sometimes he doesn't. We have an expectation that having God on our side is going to make a difference in this world and in our lives. As we've said here, our mission as a church, we believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. We do believe that, that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. But when we talk about change and the things that God is doing in our lives, what is it that we actually expect of him? Do we expect that God is going to make things better? Do we expect that God is going to fix what is wrong? When we say that God is with us, how do we then expect things to go? And listen, we live incredibly blessed lives. Incredibly blessed lives. God has poured out his love on us in so many ways, and yet there are many, many moments in our lives where God does not love us in the way that we want him to. I'm going to say that one more time. There are many moments in our lives where God does not want us in the way, does not love us in the way that we want him to. God, will you heal? God, will you fix? God, will you make 
God, will you do? And when we are not loved in the way that we ask for, in ways that sometimes are shallow and sometimes are from the deepest part of who we are, we are left questioning whether God loves us at all. And we are left sometimes feeling like God is not with us. That we are alone because surely if God loved us, then he would have. Surely if God loves me, then he wouldn't have. Surely this is what the love of God should be. What is one of the first questions we ask when God doesn't respond in the way we want him to? Why? God, if you loved me, then why? Do you want to hear something that you probably have never thought of before? And if you have, just pretend like you haven't to make me feel smart. The love of God is perhaps the biggest sticking point for people of faith and people who do not believe in God. The love of God, what he is, is perhaps the biggest sticking point. I don't know how many conversations I have had with people where their entire understanding of God has hinged on what it means for God to love them, and they have said to me that they cannot believe in God because they cannot accept that a God of love would do, that a God of love would say, that a God of love would allow. And because God is not loving us sometimes in the ways that we want him to, then what is the conclusion that some have come to. Well, if there is a God, he doesn't love me. And why would I want to follow a God who doesn't love me? Time and time again, we have denied God because he has not loved him, us in the way we want him to love us. And it makes me wonder... Um, are these feelings that we have, when we have them, are these feelings accurate? I mean, I don't know. There's, a, there's really popular uh, sayings and like phrases going around today, right? Um, you feel what you feel, you know? Um, well, that's your truth. That's my least favorite one, by the way. I've warned you now, and it's going to be on the internet for anyone who knows me that listens to here. If any of you ever say, that's your truth or that's my truth, I'm just going to smack you. <laughs> yeah. No warning. No warning. Just, just, just one good one. Just one good one. <laughs> There's a John in every audience. What do, so what do we do with this? Because here's the thing, okay? We've most often tried to answer these really serious questions by, well, pray more, or trust in God more, or 
lean on God more or just do all these things more. But when our hearts are kind of broken and we don't feel loved, what is one of the hardest things for us to do? To run to the one that we feel like isn't there. Right? Well, I want you to know something, uh, and that is we, in this time and age and space, we have not invented those, these feelings. Okay? People have struggled forever, um, ever since the separation between God and man happened. People have struggled with knowing where God is and finding him in times that are difficult. There are biblical passages that illustrate this. If only we had one to read this morning. Oh, wait, we do. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 80. It'll be on the screen here before, behind me. Listen to this psalm. You know, normally when we read psalms, this is not uh, what we gravitate toward. This, ha- this has some different ideas in it, but it, it helps us see ourselves a little bit, I think. It's a long one, so... Buckle up. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, The sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. All right. Does this psalm make you uncomfortable in any sort of way? It's an honest expression of frustration on the part of the author. The author looks around, and what does he see? Things are messed up. And they are not how they should be. 
And there are many psalms which sound a little bit like this psalm where they recognize God's goodness, they recognize his greatness, they call on God to come and save and redeem. But there is something strikingly absent from this psalm. Did you spot what it is? There is a lack of accountability. Because the writer of the psalm puts the blame for what is going on where? On God. The people were suffering and God was not responding like the writer thought God should respond. But it's more than that. There is an element to this psalm where the writer says, God, you have called us out like you put us here. You helped us grow. You helped us become something that goes from the sea to the river. And then you've torn our walls down so that people can take from us, so that animals can come in and just destroy what you gave us and what you built. And the author seems to say that the reason why this happened is because God walked away. And if you're not really sure what to think about this, verse 18 should stick in your throat a little bit. Look at that again. Well, let's go back to 17. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Verse 18, then we will not turn away from you. Do you hear it in there? Whose fault is it that the people have turned away? He makes a statement that we make whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not. The statement is something like this, God, if you would just, then we would. God, if you would just do this, then we would do this. God, if you would just love us in this way, then we would respond in love to you. And the writer here really doesn't mix his words. God, you are not doing enough. And this reflects something as uncomfortable as those words may be. It does reflect something that is the core, at the core of the feelings between when we feel this sort of absence of God. When we feel the absence of God, when we feel like God is not responding, who do we usually blame? God, I called out to you. Why didn't you respond? God, I asked you for this. Where were you? We place the responsibility for closing the gap between God and us squarely on God. And we come by it honestly. Because, like I said earlier, some of the answers that we have to close that gap may not work in the way that we think they should work and may not generate the closeness that we may want with God. Isn't there a part of us that wishes that God would make this whole relationship with him easier? 
Have you, maybe you've even had a conversation with someone who doesn't believe in God that says something to the effect of, well, if God were real and wanted everyone to believe in him, why doesn't he just make it obvious? Why doesn't he just show himself in some way that will convince everybody that he's real and he's there? Now, Paul has some things to say about that, uh, particularly in the book of Romans. But this is something that is true of us, and the writer of this psalm taps into something. That if God would just have done this, or if God would just do this, God, if you want your people to follow you again, then deliver them, and then they'll follow you. God, if you want your people to be yours, then do something for them. The funny thing about all of this is that those feelings seem very real and very genuine when we can't find God. They seem to be the very essence of truth. So so what do we do with that then? If if this is this how things are or are we misreading the situation. Is there something that we're missing in the translation here? The funny thing is, and here's something else we do. If that is us, one part is, the first part is expecting God to make up the distance between us and him. Here's something else that we do. God asks us to engage him in all sorts of different ways. He invites us to encounter him, to have relationship with him, to be close to him. But listen to this story, because this may be us as well. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah tells King Ahaz, uh, Ahaz found himself in a really difficult situation. Um, He had enemies all around him, and he didn't know what to do, and he was afraid. So he called Isaiah in and said, Isaiah, what should I do? What's going on? Where is God? Is God with me? Is God not with me? And here's how Isaiah responded to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. So Ahaz is in trouble, and what is God's response? Ask me if I'm with you, and I'll show you. Okay, that sounds like a pretty good answer on the part of God. But Ahaz's response is interesting. He said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Hold on a second. Let me get this straight. You're in trouble. And you've asked whether God is with you or not. And you've called Isaiah in and Did you notice here, is God speaking to Ahaz through Isaiah? No, it just says, what does it say? The Lord spoke to Ahaz. And what does the Lord tell Ahaz? Ask. And what does Ahaz say? No. Does that seem weird? It does. It seems really strange. Ahaz is told to ask God for a sign, and he says, no. Maybe he thought it was improper or disrespectful, but there he was, asking for God's help, and then refusing to ask God for help. 
Are we like that? Even though God invites us to engage him, don't we often say that we can't? Or that it's not working? Or that I've tried and it hasn't panned out? Or we complain that God is so far away that we want him to be in our lives and then, but we're not really engaging him. And Ahaz shows us something kind of weird about us as people. Do we want God to engage us? Yes. On whose terms? We want him to engage us on our terms. And I, I don't, I don't say any of this lightly, okay? And for those of you who have heard me talk about myself and my story and everything, you know that. You know that I don't say any of this lightly. Um, is it, I think it's possible that at times in my life where I felt the greatest distance from God, it's because I was demanding that God answer me in a specific way. And when God didn't answer me in the way that I wanted him to, who did I blame? Him for being too far away from me and not loving me. Maybe, maybe sometimes I'm more like Ahaz than I want to admit. That I'm invited to ask and engage, but I refuse. Because it's not on my terms. But listen to the response to this. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Get that, okay? You won't ask? Fine. I'll give you one anyway. What is the sign? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Amazingly enough, Though this is kind of how we are, God, will you engage us? I am engaging you. No, you're not. Well, then ask. No. What does God do anyway? He comes to us anyway. He makes this happen anyway. He closes the distance between us and him anyway. Even though it's not his responsibility even though it's not his fault, even though he is not the one that ran away, God is the one that closes the distance between us and him. Which is why we have this story that we told today from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to his son, and he gave him the name Jesus. We talked about this with Mary last week. And we see it in Joseph again this week. Remember what we said about Mary? God ruined her life. And we see in this poor, humble couple that they wanted to do the will of God. But was what God wanted them to do what they wanted? No. Was the end result amazing, incredible, magnificent? Yes. But was the path there easy? No. Joseph was planning his exit strategy. Because this was not right. What was going on here was not right. But God spoke to him, and what does God tell him? Hold on. Hold on. And in the moment where Joseph was writing off his future, God speaks to him and says, your future is in my hands, and if you will hold on, you will bring God to the earth. This morning, we celebrate with heaven because we who know Jesus can say that Jesus has changed our lives for knowing him. We can testify to the world that he has made a very real difference in our lives. And so when we are short on hope and it feels like the things that oppose us are just stacking up in every direction. We have words like these. What then shall we say in response to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have hope because the stuff is going to happen and pile up. But we have a God who 
promises us that no matter what happens and piles up, we will never be separated from him. The distance has been closed. And he is there. When we are short on peace and we don't know where to turn or what to do and everything is chaos around us, we have these words. Do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. But listen to that. He doesn't say, pray, and God will fix everything. What does he say? Pray, and what will you have? Peace that doesn't make sense. You know why it doesn't make sense? Because everything's still broken. So why would you all of a sudden have peace about it? Because where have you put it? In the hands of the God who will not allow you to be taken from him. When we are short on joy because it is so unspeakable that we cannot say anything about it, we have these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And when we are short on love and we feel alone and abandoned and that nothing can fill the hole that seems to be growing in our heart, we have these words which are a smack upside the head. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. What do all of these verses say, church? What do they say? They say that God may not love you in the way you want, but God is going to love you in the way that you need him to. And not everything in this fallen and broken place is going to be fixed and made right. But hallelujah, this place is not all there is. And maybe we have an expectation for what God's love should look like. But maybe God's love is better than that. Maybe it's better than that. And what do you want? What is the cry of your heart? If the cry of our heart in the darkness in the wilderness is for God to set everything straight for us, that's never what God promised. 
to anyone. But if our cry in the darkness in the wilderness is for God to come near, God says, I already have. Emmanuel, God with us, the salvation of our souls, the redemption of our lives, the God who loves us just like we need him to. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have shown us through Jesus. God, there are a lot of moments in our lives where you feel far away. And God, we can't always control how we feel. In those times where we cry out to you and call out to you and no answers present themselves to us. God, it's hard when things stay broken to feel like you are there. But God, as we have seen in all these things, you have not promised to take everything away. You have promised that there is a place beyond all these things. And may we not put our hope in this life, but may our hope, our peace, our joy, and our love for you be motivated by the life that you have waiting for us. For that is the real life, away from this place with its brokenness and hurt. And God, when you do feel far away from us, will you wrap us in your presence? Will you help us not to give up on you? Will you let us struggle through the hurt and the feelings and the pain that we have? Will you help us to lay those things in front of you? And may you, as the God who has shown us what love is, not take away the scars, but allow the wounds to heal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, if you want to know this God who loves you in this amazing way, we invite you to come forward as we stand singing this song together.